Welcome to episode nine of After the Breach, a podcast for whale enthusiasts by whale enthusiasts. We're recording from Friday Harbor, Washington on San Juan Island. We are your hosts, Jeff Friedman and Sarah Hassang Shimazu, both captains and professional guides with Maya's Legacy Whale Watching on San Juan Island. Joining us as our guest this week remotely from Vancouver Island is our friend and whale researcher, Gary Sutton. Gary works with OceanWise Research and Base Etology and is also a whale and wildlife guide. We're going to talk to Gary about his research, and we'll also update you on the latest sightings. We have some listener emails. We've got a great episode. Thanks for listening. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Gary. Hey, guys. Gary, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's yeah, been thanks a, lo- a lot. I mean, I feel like it's long overdue. We've been talking about it for a while. <laughs> I know. We've been talking about it for a long time. Scheduling, rescheduling, but we're here. Yeah. We made it happen. Well, for um, you know our listeners, I... You're, you're, to me, like one of the most famous people in the region, um, you know, on social media, like just your fo- photography is amazing. And a lot of people like come out on the boat and been like, oh, Gary Sutton, we know Gary, you're like local celebrity. So, um, but for the, our listeners that maybe aren't, aren't uh, introduced to you yet, you want to <laughs> talk a little bit about yourself? Oh, man. <laughs> I know. Our, all of our <laughs> well, favorite subjects, I'm blushing right? now. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, well, well, thank you. I mean, obviously, that means a lot, especially coming from you, as talented as you are as well. So it's, um, definitely recognize how incredible you are at your job as well, and photography. Um, I I mean, I did whale watching, for those that don't know me, I moved out here in 2007 um, to British Columbia to kind of chase the dream of working with whales. It's always what I wanted to do growing up. And so I decided to take the leap of faith and moved out here. And shortly after, uh, got a job doing whale watching out of Vancouver and sort of ran with it and really thankful for the people I got to work with early on who kind of encouraged me to keep pushing further and become a captain and get a camera and, and show me the ropes on, on that as well. And um, and it's just sort of been growing from there. And as you know, the more you do this, the more kind of obsessed you get, especially if you're a true whale nerd and it kind of it's all encompassing. It sort of takes over your whole life. So um, obviously that's what happened with me. I'd spend all day on the boat and then, go home and just stare at all the photos hour after hour trying to figure out who they all were, which uh, was a really nerdy thing to do. But in the long run was amazing because as you know, you, you know, the more you do it, anything, the better you get at it. And uh, doing photo ID night after night really enabled me to hone my skills and uh, provided me opportunities to work with incredible people like Jared Towers and, and uh, which propelled me further into the research world, which is where I am now. Sweet. Yeah, and you um, are a researcher with OceanWise and also with Bay Cytology. Um, and you just kind of got back, not immediately, but recently from uh, field season up there. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I was uh, up there with uh, the 2022 season. We uh, were in collaboration with the Rain Coast Conservation Foundation. So we worked with them uh, this summer, and we spent about six weeks uh, operating in the off northeast Vancouver Island and the central coast as well. And um, my work with Jared and, and base etology is mostly focused in the wintertime. And although we do get out in the water opportunistically, it's a lot of kind of just grinding through photos and doing the photo ID thing. Awesome. Well, um, with the last like field research, I guess, you know, we, there's so much research going on and, and you've had some incredible, um, well, OceanWise has shared some incredible encounters that you guys have had during your field research seasons. What, what's kind of the focus of some of that research that you've been doing um, in the last couple of seasons? And where, where is up there? Yeah, we, we know we're up there, is, but, <laughs> but, and it's not terribly far from, from we, where we are in the San Juan Islands. I mean, it's it not, we can't get up there on a trip, but it's, uh, I think, about, what, 150 miles or so. Oh, more than that. Yeah, yeah. I think you've yeah. been up uh, Central Coast, BC, right? Yep. Yeah, all the way to Central Coast. So we started, um, you know, I, I felt kind of lucky to be kind of jumping into this project. Uh, and my first year was 2021 with them. And the the, the study was really pioneered in 2014 by um, John Durbin, Holly Fernback, who you guys know very well, and, and Lance Barrett Leonard as well. So um, they're the ones who came up with this idea of using drones to photograph these whales aerially and um, assessing body condition because it obviously allows you to see much more of the whale compared to boat-based work. So um, I kind of jumped in in 2021 when they've sort of perfected it already. So it was kind of nice for me to sort of slide in there. Um, But most of the work was focused 
uh, in Johnson Strait. So just off the northeastern tip of Vancouver Island, sort of starts just north of Campbell River, and uh, it goes all the way up, you know, sort of past Alert Bay, which is where we were based for our our field work for this for 2021. We spent all of our field season in the Johnson Strait area, and that's mostly because we were restricted uh, going up to the central coast because of COVID and the First Nations up there, the Gitgat and the Heltzik. So um, this year we were fortunate to be able to get back up there, which for me, it was my first time. So I was super stoked because it's such an amazing part of the coast. And I've heard so many stories about it and to actually get to not just go there, but, you know, like actually crawl through the little inlets and, and especially the second leg where we were up in Kamano Sound. Uh, we, we got to stay aboard the Achiever, which is a boat uh, owned by Raincoast. And so we were on this boat working day after day, but in the evenings, we'd end up going into these little coves, you know, by Finn Island or Princess Royal Island, which is spirit bear country. And even though we didn't see any, you know, we'd we'd anchor the boat in these little bays and you could hear a pin drop. Like, it's just, it's almost like the the world just kind of been put on pause, Um, you know, and and we get in this little, this little uh, Zodiac and just putter into the shore and kind of go walking along these these salmon bearing rivers, salmon just jumping are around everywhere. And, you know, you can see, we didn't see any bears, but we could see where bears had been, which for me is just equally as cool. I don't know. I, I love that stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of going on a rant here, but it was, it was really, really fun to be up there. And obviously the work that we did up there was photogrammetry based as well. So doing these aerial photos of, of killer whales, which the central coast does provide a few more challenges than Johnson Strait. Um, in terms of weather, but we were pretty lucky. We ended up finding killer whales on about 75% of our days, although a lot of those days we weren't able to uh, to fly over them, unfortunately, because of things like rain and fog and swell and all the things that are sort of going on up there. Sure. I, that just sounds amazing, um, just being out there where there's just no no other human, like, no, no other humans, right? There's no no other sound, but you know, kind of the natural world, and that's just incredible. So, yeah, it's amazing that we, you know, we feel like we're very remote. And I, I have been up to Johnstone Strait; it's been a long time, but it's it, it makes the San Juan Islands look like like New York City. <laughs> yeah, and I, oh, I totally. And I do yeah. want to just point out that I wasn't that far off. Um, as the crow flies, Johnstone Strait is 190 miles from here. How how far is the boat drives? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get there somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and it was it was kind of it was it was interesting, um, you know, because most of the research that I've done in Johnson Strait or whale watching here in the Salish Sea, it, it's it's pretty. You usually have a report or at some point throughout the day, you know, there's whales here going this way, and as soon as we got onto the central coast, it's like you're on your own, man. Like every day, it's, you you got to go out and, and put the work in and put the time in, and it was it was fun because I love that. Like I love the thrill of the chase and trying to find them. And um, but yeah, it, it certainly added a level of uh, complexity to the whole mission. Oh sure, sure. I know Jeff and I both you know can commiserate there with looking for whales and trying to find them. But I think that like adrenaline rush of finding whales is. I don't know. I haven't found anything that beats it. No, there's no no rush like like that. It must be amazing to find them up there too, because there are so many like little inlets and narrow channels. It's like you could almost go in a million different directions, and then to to find them, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it was it was really cool. I mean, that's Sarah. I was I was just talking to Jared about this today. Actually, how sometimes like the the thrill of finding them is often better than the encounter. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, yeah. it's just, it's just this big, this big rush to get them. But yeah, um, finding them out there was, was incredible. Cause again, you had nothing to go on. So you had that rush, but at the same time for me specifically is as, as you know, you guys know, working here, you get to know the whales so well. So when you do find whales, you, it's not long before you're like, Oh, it's the T-37s or it's J-Pod or, um, whereas for me, who hasn't spent much time working with Northern residents, um, you get up there and you find a group of whales and it's all unfamiliar fins. <laughs> so, uh, getting to learn more about that and like doing the ID game of animals I haven't done it with much was a really fun aspect for me too. Oh, sure. So when you do come across whales that, that 
you would see down here and you know, they're just cruising, cruising up there. It, do you have that feeling of like seeing a, f- a familiar friend or a f- familiar face in the crowd? Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and it's funny cause, um, you can all often track the whales that are going to, you know, you get reports from you guys of whales that are down here going North and like you're doing on your phone, they're tracking, you know, how many miles I'm like, okay, how many miles, how long <laughs> before they get here. And, and it's amazing how you can often time it almost to the, the hour of when they're going to arrive right where on your doorstep. That's awesome. Especially yeah. in Johnson Strait. All right. Well, um, you know, one of the other things we like to talk about and for you, especially with your research, uh, just how important it is, um, the photogrammetry, um, you know, for those of us that have been kind of in the industry and, and know the whales and know what's going on as far as research goes, it's not an unfamiliar topic, but, um, I think for a lot of people that, you know, tune in or come out whale watching once or twice, maybe they don't know what, what this whole thing is with the photogrammetry and with the drones and what the kind of work is. And it's just been so eye opening, I think for, um, for us and for everybody. So, um, what's, what's some of the cool stuff that you've, you've seen with the drones and with your photogrammetry research, um, lately. And I know, I know, and Jeff knows what, you know, kind of we're looking for what you guys are looking for when you're doing it. But for those that aren't, um, what are some of the big things that you're kind of out there looking for when you're using the drones? Well, yeah, it's, it's an amazing technology that came out and it's just getting better and better. And it was such a great, uh, great idea by John and Holly and Lance to, <clears throat> to come up with this. And, and basically what was noted is that these, these whales, as they kind of gain or lose weight, it, it typically shows up first in the cranial area, sort of around their um, blowhole or just on the other, other side of it. So using the drone, the, the, the goal here is to, to kind of assess the fat around that area and monitor seasonal changes in those fat deposits and, and hopefully be able to relate that to things like salmon abundance. Um, so the, the importance of that work is obviously crucial because it allows you to, especially if there's a, a lot of whales that are skinny in a particular year, hopefully that, well, that information does get to fisheries management and hopefully decisions are made there to help mitigate that. But along with the cranial fat, you see all these other things. I mean, you guys know with the Southern residents, we had no idea how many of them were pregnant. We just knew that these Southern residents were coming back. We'd only see one baby every few years. And then all of a sudden this drone research comes out and John and Holly start flying above them. And it's like, wow, there's seven whales pregnant this year and next year they come back and there's zero babies. So you start to get a better idea of this mortality rate or the, the unsuccessful pregnancies, especially with Southern residents. Um, so I think that was one of the, the one of the big eye-opening discoveries there. And other than that, it's a lot of behavior, you know, just little things, these little nuances between individuals and tugging, you know, two whales with kelp in their mouth and they're pulling it different directions. I mean, some of that's not scientifically important, but it really helps you kind of get a better appreciation for everything that goes on below the surface that we don't normally get to see. But yeah, the I mean, the, the overarching goal here is to what they do is what we do is we take photos from above and then their eye patches will look at kind of how they're angled. So if they're really skinny, they're usually quite parallel. And uh, as they gain weight, it sort of, they kind of get this more um, wide angle where the, the the aft side of the eye patch is a lot wider than the the forward side. And can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing, like the contrast between, like Southern residents and, and bigs. I mean, are you seeing a lot of pregnancies with, with bigs when, when you're uh, doing your drone work and, and what kind of behaviors you're seeing? Any, any, any cool behaviors that you see in, during hunting and, and things like that when they're, they're hunting marine mammals? Yeah. Um, so as far as the Southern residents go, that would be, that would be a John and Holly question because uh, I haven't spent any time flying over them. Um, but our, the, our main, project goal is looking at northern resident killer whales and looking at uh, the fat deposits on on those particular animals and that's been going on since 2014 so um the bigs the bigs are more opportunistic and they're a little more difficult as well because with the with the northern residents you can often find those those edges of the eye patch quite easy but the bigs they just have these giant jaws and these massive fat heads they're just they're so bulky that it's hard it's hard to often pick out the the size of the eye patch 
and even the pregnancies, you know, you'll see some of these whales, some of the northern residents, like A73 last year, we get the drone up above her and you can just see her midsection around the ribs is so wide and she's, you know, in her late stages of pregnancy. And then there'd be times like we flew over T99 um, right before she gave birth to T99E. And granted, the conditions weren't that great for photogrammetry, being that we need kind of still water. We're pretty fair weather sailors. Um, but we did get up over them and had no indication that she was pregnant. Wow. And it was only like a couple weeks later she gave birth. I mean, they're just they're just so massive. Are you are you? that's that's fascinating to that they really are is. i mean it's like we we talk on the boat like these are you know they're fat whales they're very well fed um i'm i'm assuming that because the northern residents are doing much better than the southern residents are you do you see them in in relatively good condition uh overall yeah i mean it changed changes from year to year, obviously. And, and we do see seasonal changes and, and annual changes in their, in their body condition. And um, that's sort of being looked into deeper right now as to, as to why that is. Obviously there's going to be environmental reasons, but there's also going to be social dynamics there as well. And that's one thing that our team is looking at right now is kind of uncovering some of those mysteries. So hopefully that will, that will come out soon, but certainly they, they're definitely doing better than the Southern residents. I think we all know why that is. I mean, not just, not just the lack of prey, but also the 1970s and the capture era, all those animals taken kind of left this giant hole in this, the culture of these Southern resident killer whales in comparison, even though the Northern residents were targeted as well, they weren't hit quite as hard as our, our Southern residents. So you still see these kind of stable matrilines, um, old matriarchs leading the pod, and obviously, it's it's quite different than our southern residents, was, which was pretty shocking for me too. You know, you see J pod, you see J pod, whereas up there, it's more almost more like bigs in a way, where you see matrilines rather than rather than uh, pods. Interesting. Uh, that, yeah, that is really interesting. It's uh, I I was lucky enough to see some of the northern residents when I was up there. I, this goes back probably it's almost fifteen years, probably at this point. I. I keep saying I need to get back up there and, and, and haven't, but I, I do find it really interesting that the Northern residents are doing so much better than the Southern residents. And they're, they're well above pre-capture numbers and the Southern residents can't seem to find their way back up above pre-capture numbers. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you know, you just look at the numbers when they, I think you know, you guys know as well as I do, it was about 30% of the population, right? Okay. And it was animals between, one and five years old. So, you know, and then on top of that, they live in this, this heavily industrialized area where fishing was huge as well. And, and they've kind of been stacked up against it. So, um, yeah, luckily for the Northerns, they're in a more remote area. And, and again, as you guys know, a lot of the fish stocks that are coming in towards the Fraser, some of them will come over top of Vancouver Island and come down that way. So these Northerns are getting they're getting the dinner table set for them first before the Southerns do. Right. Well, I think uh, last we heard, I think the Southern residents are may may end up being on their way up to you to Johnson Strait area. And I think um, they were sighted off Campbell River today. Wow. I saw that. Yeah, that's exciting, hey? Road trip. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> they, usually when they're up there, they're... They, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's what we're hoping to see this, this winter is that... You know, uh, I don't know about on the U.S. side, but on the Canadian side, when you look at all these recovery strategies for not just southern residents, but big killer whales and, and humpbacks, too, the big gaping hole that is in all of these recovery strategies is what the hell is going on in the winter? Mm-hmm. You know, we we know they're obviously eating, but what are they eating and, and what stocks are they from? And, and uh, no one's really done it in depth. So um, we're hoping to sort of bridge that gap and and be out there more in a, the less desirable time of the, of the year and figure out what's going on. That's, that's awesome. I mean, it's a definitely a, an information gap that needs to be filled to, to help the recovery strategy. And I, I, the Southern residents, at least the last few winters, uh, inter, at least J pod has spent a good amount of time up, uh, up in, in the inland waters near, uh, Campbell river, 
and so- south of there. Yeah. Yep. Northern Strait of Georgia seems to be kind of a place that they've spent a little bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like last year, it seemed like last year they were there almost more often in the winter than they were in the summer. I mean, I don't, I don't know yeah. those numbers, but it seemed like they were around a lot and, and it not even just being around, but all their routes were kind of different. You know, it's like the winter route where they'd go yeah. up Trincomalee and then come back down through Santa Narrows and, yeah. and all sorts of weird stuff going on. Yeah, that was crazy. Was, I think they did that twice through Sansom last year. Yeah, you know, now that we're talking about this, I mean, this this just hit me. It's really interesting. And maybe, you know, maybe J-Pod is taking K's and L's up there saying, hey, we found a great winter spot. And they are, Gary, you are right. I mean, they are, at least the last few years with Jays, they have been in the inland waters much more in the the fall and winter months than they are in the spring and summer months. And things are changing so much with them that you're going to fill this data gap in the, in the wintertime. And now we have a new data gap of where are they going and what are they eating in the summer because they're not here. So that's, there's your next yeah. project. Yeah, there you go. Well, I mean, there's there's some great people working on that. You know, like you guys know Brian Gisborne. Yeah. Um, he's been working with fisheries and oceans for for many many years, and he's you know he he does some incredible stuff, stuff that not a lot of people could do. He goes out by himself on this thirty foot boat for sometimes days and or weeks on end, and just drifts around out in this open Pacific water, getting rocked and rolled, and wow. and documenting what's going on out there. And I know he's. I know he's seen Southern residents out there quite a bit in the summer and Northern residents and offshores and transients. That's some big, big, big water um, out there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. As, as Mark would say, it's time to put on your big boy pants. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the, the drone footage aside, but just in general, some of the most interesting or coolest or just most awesome things that you've seen up in that area when you've been out on the water. And if it doesn't come up, I'm going to ask about a specific thing that you saw this summer, but I think you know what it was. So I, oh, come I'm up. wondering what that is. Cause I don't think I know. Oh man. Um, okay. So we're talking the coolest thing seen this summer. Um, oh, yeah. I think, well, Sarah, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, is, are you thinking about the <laughs> bubble netting humpback whales? Yeah, that was that was one of them. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, you guys all know who love whales. One of the most iconic feeding strategies you can see is this this bubble netting that humpback whales are, have become famous for, where you know they blow these bubble rings around schooling fish, and they start emitting this really crazy high frequency noise, which is, you know, we think it anyways to drive these fish into a tighter ball. And um, and then you have like ten to twelve whales all exploding through the surface at the same time with their mouths gaping open. And I've seen it in documentaries over and over again, but it's always been on my bucket list to see it in real life. And um, in Kamano Sound this year, we got up there, and I know that was a an area where they see it quite regularly. So I just remember being up there on day one, and we we get out not far outside of Kamano Sound. I put up binoculars. And I'm just scanning out into the open water and I just see like, it just looks like an island just came out of the water <laughs> and then just disappeared again. And I was like, what the hell was that? And Lance is like, oh, it must be bubble netting. So we dropped the hydrophone and we could, we could hear the, <laughs> that, that, and so we, uh, we ended up getting out there on day two and the weather was, we got so lucky, like the weather, no swell, no rain, no fog, hardly ever happens up there. And so we just took this little like 16 foot rib out there. And uh, yeah, the, the, I think probably more impressive than even seeing it was listening to it yeah, and just bad. hearing like how loud it was, you know, it was just crazy. That was probably one of, th- that was the highlight day for sure. I mean, getting to see that behavior, but then on top of it, we launched the drone and try to catch some of this behavior from the air. And, uh, while they're flying, I'm usually driving the boat, doing photo ID, uh, looking out for other things. So they're flying, and um, I put the binos up. And I'm like, oh, there's there's killer whales here, like right here as well, like just outside of these humpbacks. Wow. And um, so we end up, go, end up going over there, and there's about 30 northern residents, like a bunch of R's and the A64s and 
Um, so, you know, you drop the hydrophone and we can hear these bubble netting humpbacks and the occasional A-clan call, which for all of us that grew up on Free Willy, it's just, you know, you get that really um, yeah. amazing feeling every time you hear that. I, I don't even know what to say. That sounds just incredible. I, I, yeah. I got to get back up there. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I've only seen bubble net yeah. feeding once. It was up in Alaska near Admiralty Island, and it was just the most profound, I think, encounter with humpback whales I've ever had. Pro- I mean, up there for any whale encounter I've ever had, but I keep waiting to see, see that here. I mean, we get, we get lunch feeding, but, but no cooperative like bubble netting or anything like that, but maybe, maybe eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, I had a single, a single bubble, bubble netter off Galliano Island one year out here in the Strait of Georgia. Yeah. Um, Prowler, I think it was. And, and lucky, lucky is a solo bubble nut feeder as well. That's been seen down here too. So maybe it'll happen. Yeah. I think we saw lucky last winter or the winter before down here. And I'm ashamed to admit this. How, how many did you see Sarah? Oh gosh. It was, I, I think it was between 15 and 20, uh, 15 and 20 right in there. It was crazy. I have. Wow. Yeah. Photos from it. Not great photos. Cause I was just like, so and enraptured with watching but um yeah it was it was impressive and they were so close to shore in that in that spot too i think they were probably within uh 50 to 100 yards of shore where they wow they were that's so cool but i think so i think when sarah asked you this question about like the the most interesting or awesome or coolest encounter or thing you saw in the water i don't think she was talking about bubble netting well that was one of the things i was thinking of but there was one other one other, uh, which was oh. Frosty. Oh, God. How could I forget that? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, so that was, I mean, that was crazy because we, we had just finished up our, our leg on the Central Coast. So, you know, we'd been up there for about two weeks, and and those are long, long days. Like I said, you know, you work pretty hard to find the whales up there, so we're usually working 8 to 12 hours, you know, a lot of looking. And so by the time we're coming down to Johnson Strait, we're – brought the boat all the way down there across Cape Caution, which can be notoriously bad. Luckily it wasn't horrendous, but uh, it wasn't super comfortable. Um, and we finally get there. And then, you know, the next morning we wake up first thing and, and get to work at, at Johnson Strait. And we automatically have a report of the A30s in Johnson Strait, which after being up on the central coast for like weeks on end with no reports, you're just like, oh man, this is awesome. <laughs> okay, just drive to the report. And so we got out there and we started all flying above the A30s. And uh, and then a call came in on the radio from one of the tour operators up there who, who said, oh, we got some whales up here by the Stephensons, which is just kind of west of where we were at the time. And uh, so I'm listening to this. And then all of a sudden they go, is it normal uh, for there to be a white killer whale? And <laughs> of course, right away, I'm just like, is it Toluk back from the dead? You know, he's been missing <laughs> right. for two years. This would be amazing. And and they were flying at the time. So I waited for them to land. And then I said to Lance, can we, can we just go and get those guys? Because our main project is obviously Northern Resident Killer Whales. But the A30s, they're, they, they've they been around for weeks. And, you know, they're going to be around still. They, they like to stay in that area for quite a while. So he said, yeah, okay, let's, let's go. So we wrapped it up and bombed up there. And uh, as soon as we got on scene, saw the dorsal fin and knew right away that it wasn't Toluk. You know, I'd spent a lot of time with that whale. So looks looks quite different. Besides being white, you know, looks looks quite different. And um, and I just started racking my head. I'm like, who, who else could it be? The only other whale I can think of that's kind of that age would be this California transient, you know, CA216C1, I believe, um, or Frosty. And so I took some photos and sent the back of... Uh, the screenshots down to our uh, colleagues down there in California at the California Killer Whale Research Project, uh, Elisa Shulman-Yanager and Tomoko and, and Colleen. And and they got back and said, yeah, that's Frosty and, and their mom. And, and they were with the T-69s um, and the 60s. And it was such a strange encounter. I mean, they were all together in sort of a kind of a normal group. And then they, they kind of ventured into this, Pierce Pass, which is right between Black Eddy and um, and uh, these two whales, Frosty and, and his mom, just 
they just started zipping around the pass. And I, I don't know what it was or whether it was the current. There was a whole bunch of boats that had just arrived as well. Because, of course, when you hear white killer whale on the radio, everybody wants to see. So there was, I don't know if that was it or, or what it was, but the 69s and the 60s continued through Pierce and up towards um, Malcolm Island. And we lost those two. We heard they were down in Johnson Strait going south quickly. And so, and but there was a few boats with them. So we said, ah, let's, we'll do a couple flights over the 60s and 69s and stayed with them. And then all of a sudden we got a call about an hour later from an operator who said, I think we have a stranding of these whales. We think they've, they've stranded in Beaver Cove, which is just kind of near Telegraph Cove there. And can you guys come and have a look? So um, Lance said, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll come check it out. So we we went over there and there's this little sort of um, industrial area. Well, Beaver Cove is pretty industrial in itself, but there was this one, one of the back coves on the west side was, there's a little like fish packing place there, fish farm or something. And these whales were right in the shallows. And we didn't get there at the time of the, you know, the stranding, but they were, you could see from the videos that these guys took, we, we moved right in and talked with them. And uh, they they showed us the videos and you could see the, the, the fluke out of the water and the rostrum out of the water as this whale was kind of arching. They were high and dry um, right out on the, on the, on the beach. Wow. And, um, and it's so strange because they, they, they got off thankfully without any human intervention, but then they kind of just circled in that bay for about an hour and we stayed with them and did, did a flight over them to see if there's any, any noticeable injuries or anything, but there wasn't. And then they kind of moved out further into Beaver Cove and we lost them. And so then we went back in and they were right back in that bay again, just kind of doing the circles. and. And then eventually, you know, two hours later or whatever it was, they they came out of the entrance of Beaver Cove and then they just started bombing to the west, moving probably eight to 12 knots and just going like back out, heading out over the top of Vancouver Island, get me the hell out of here sort of vibe. That's and, um, so interesting. I, and I, I we kind of speculated on what what drove that behavior. And of course, we'll never really know. But the interesting is, thing is the A30s weren't far away at the time where this all sort of went down. And I'm wondering if they heard the Northern residents, these, these A-Clan calls and got freaked out for whatever reason, because it, I mean, I, I don't think they probably ever would have heard them before. Yeah. So maybe, maybe it was something that spooked them and they were looking for a place to, to hide or I, I don't know. That's it. Well, and, and, you know, in that area, it's, there's such narrow channels that I would think that the, the sound is very different in those areas and much, much louder uh, that they're able to pick up on, on the different acoustics. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in Johnson Strait, right? Those big, tall, steep uh, cliffs that go straight down, that, that sound just echoes all the way up and down. Right. And you're, you're only talking about a few miles across. So your, your narrow channels, really, really deep drop-offs, steep, steep canyon walls. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I mean, if, I remember nights listening to the Orca Lab hydrophones as I was falling asleep with, with big groups of Northern residents. And you just, it wasn't just the calls that you heard, but hearing them echoing through the, you know, back and forth through the strait. And so, yeah, they, that, that's an interesting theory that uh, they were picking up on, on those calls, but fascinating that they were even up there. Yeah. Yeah. And did you guys hear recently that uh, they were seen? down south of Monterey. Yeah, in late October, I think they were seeing, yeah, like Morro Bay. So, yeah, Morro Bay, that's right. See, yeah. I, I think a lot of these whales, I think they get around more than we realize, especially when they're out, you know, off the outer coast, especially. Um, you know, it, yeah. I, I think they're 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 moving up and down the coast a lot more than we realize. Oh, for sure. Oh, dude, I, I would love to. That's sort of one of my dreams. I mean, of course, when you're out there, in 20 knots of wind and 20 and 20 foot swell, I'd probably change my mind. But, <laughs> but right now, um, the thought of just sitting out on the continental shelf off the West coast of Vancouver Island all yep. summer. Yep. And cause you know, it runs pretty far out from Vancouver Island, but you get up to sort of Haida Gwaii and stuff or even further up Vancouver Island and it comes in pretty close to right. shore. And I think there's a ton of stuff going on out there. Like not just killer whales, but 
particularly killer whales would I be interested in? No, for sure. Um, I'll go up there with you, Gary. I mean, and I've, I've talked to, I remember Jared talking to me about this uh, a few years ago saying that, you know, off the coast, they're all not, not like bigs and, and residents, but like all the different bigs populations, they're all, they're all out there kind of mixing it up. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's, as we all know, there's this putative inner shore and outer outer shore or outer coast population of these big killer whales and there is overlap between them <laughs> not a new species been documented um, for quite some time yes yeah but, and it's kind of interesting to see you know hear about jared telling telling me stories about the immigration and immigration between those two populations and we're not even populations but two subsets of the same population um even saying things like the T65As, who we all know is one right. of our regular gang, how like back in the day, they were sort of the, the bucketless match line for people to see because they were, they were so infrequently seen here in the inner inland waters. And now it's like, this is their hood. This is where they spend almost all their time. Well, and, and more and more time down in, in South Puget Sound or, you know, around right. Seattle and Olympia and Hood Canal. I mean, they, they didn't just come into the inland waters. They went all the way in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they love it down there. Hey, they, they just they, they do. get stuck down there and stay down there. Yeah. And and it seems like every year they take a different family down there with them and kind of camp out. And I I can't wait to see who it's going to be next year. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's always the seventy sevens with them, hey. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I I always think about them when I think about that for one of the first full day trips I had, and they were down in Puget Sound, like south of. Kamado Island, I think it was. Oh yeah, and, uh, yeah. I, I yeah, I, I had no other whales day. in the area. And I remember r- radioing Jeff and, and like, I'm coming. I'm gonna come down. <laughs> Will you wait? Is you're coming? Are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm coming. I waited. I, I do remember that. I, I waited. Yeah, I, I I witnessed yeah. it. You were you were all the way down there because I I mean I was far from me. Yeah. 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 That was I, the furthest I've ever been. Oh, that was yeah. That is uh that is. Epically far for for one of your tours. Is that the is that the only time you've ever driven underneath uh, Deception Pass? Yep, one and only time. <laughs> yeah, yep. I felt like I was really in I was really in America then. I was going down <laughs> after that. You know, you got the naval air base. So there's like you know F 16s flying over me. I'm like I'm in America now. <laughs> yeah. So for for our listeners, the area we're talking about is east. It's the east side of Whidbey Island. Mm-hmm. And so it's between Whidbey Island and the mainland, and it, there's a narrow area of, of water uh, that goes, you go under this awesome bridge, you're going through Deception Pass, and you're back in these like narrow channels of water. It's it's part of the Salish Sea, and killer whales go back in there. I was just back back in there, uh, a, what, a week and a half ago. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, we don't go back there. It's not often we get there, but, but it's, it's pretty epic. And awesome that, that you made it back there, Gary. Yeah. Well, thanks for hanging in. Of course. Absolutely. So we should uh, we should move move to talk about some of our latest sightings. Speaking of, um, and Gary, you just had a cool one a couple of days ago. I don't know if you, do you want to share it. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We were um, we we took the the research boat out for a little spin on on Saturday and. Uh, wasn't a dedicated survey, but definitely always looking for whales whenever we're out there, as you guys know. Um, and uh, as we're we're heading up, we stopped to have a scan and picked up some killer whales and shot up and found it was a T37 group and the T34s, so kind of the regular gang for the area. But they had a new little baby tucked in with them, which is exciting to see T37B with a, a new calf, which. Um, hopefully in the next population update will be designated as T37B3. Um, B2 has been missing for, for a little while now, actually a couple, couple years. Um, so yeah, really excited to see her with one that was sort of our highlight of the weekend. Yeah. I love that family a lot. So it's, it's that's awesome. That's, that's <laughs> I awesome know when you messaged hear. me, I was so excited to hear that. And we, uh, <laughs> yeah. We were out with a new baby on our last all-day tour a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, um, with T forty six B one. Yeah, that's yeah the forty right. six B's also, have a new new one. I'm really, also excited when you messaged me about that one. <laughs> it was really cool. It was, I mean, it was very very small, so you know, very very new, and 
uh, while we were we were getting ready to leave, we were uh, we were in some pretty yeah, it was good. Big. It was, yeah, we I were mean, in not some big, but it was it was sizable. The, sizable swells. Um, you know the kind where uh, you know sometimes it's like, hey, where are they? It's oh, they're up there. Um, <laughs> but really cool. They they stalled out and started hunting. Uh, they were hunting a harbor seal, and I mean, really got such a great view of this brand new baby just tucked in with mom. Not doing anything in the hunt, but yeah, you know, we think of like, oh, you got to protect the baby, and and but that that little calf was right in there with mom, just shadowing her through the whole hunt. It was pretty pretty remarkable to see such a, a young calf right in there. Yeah, yeah, those those pigs, you know, they're they're born badass right away. They are. They are they really are. It's it's really really incredible. Well, I've been off the water for a little while, Jeff, but what else has been going on out there? Lots of great humpbacks out there, That's too. That's true. I have I mean, seen we've, some we've, humpbacks. We've been seeing, yeah, we've been seeing uh, killer whales quite a bit. We do have, um, and I, we mentioned this earlier in the, in the show, we have J's, K's, and L's, the Southern Residents. It's, it's actually a true super pod. It is a true um, super pod. I think Monica posted that they documented all 73. That's amazing. Yeah, they wow. they were all down in Puget Sound, and now they're all up in in northern state of Georgia. And you know, going back to you know prior to my time here, and people used to talk about how many, how often they would see super pods in the summer. And I I think I maybe have seen four in my eight years here, uh, and two of those four were actually winter time. One was when I was out with Sarah, and we had a bachelorette party on board. <laughs> <laughs> when L124 was first seen, it was like the day after it was first seen. And yeah, it was big super pod and bachelorette party. And they brought a boom box on board. They did. And we're playing Spice Girls. Yes. <laughs> and I now can't see that whale without thinking about the Spice Girls. That's very funny. <laughs> yeah. That way, like two, yeah. two, 50% of the super pods that I've seen have been in the wintertime. Um, and yeah, they were uh, kind of came by. Came up from Puget Sound, went by San Juan Island on their way up to Strait of Georgia, came right back down, were back down by the next morning, and then went back up, and they've been going further north since. Um, lots of great humpbacks wild, too. Yeah. Yeah, very wild. It's so crazy to just think of like a, a true super pod in the northern Strait of Georgia in mid-November. Right. It's just, you never pick it. No, I mean, it's, it's like we say, everything with them – like the the book on Southern Residence, you can throw it out the window because everything they have changed everything, and it, it's and I think we've mentioned this on on this podcast where people are always asking us, well, you know, why don't they just go and start eating seals? And it, it's very clear with what we're seeing, they are adapting to what has happened to their food supply, but they're adapting their way, not our way. Uh, yeah, they're not adapting by going and just eating something totally different. But their old patterns are completely off, off, off the rails now. And I mean, like, yeah, it seems like that. Well, go ahead, sir. Oh, no, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, and it, you know, it seems like on the outer coast there, they're 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 targeting black cod um, quite a bit. That seems to be their preferred food on uh, off the banks out there. So I don't know if that's always been like that, or you know, we're just paying more attention now, or they're shifting to that diet more and more, but. Yeah, you often hear that. I mean, working on the whale watching boats for so long, you always hear, well, why don't these whales just eat something else? You know, we live in a world of so much choice. You know, we can just have whatever we want where these animals are so cultural and stubbornly cultural, first of all. They, they, they're they really resistant to change. And then secondly, people have this idea that these whales are starving to death, you know, that they're literally wasting right. away. And it's, it, it's, it's that they're food stress. And, right. and, and the stress of food is, is amplifying all these other issues like toxins and, and acoustics yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. I know. I always try to like on the days that we get, well, I talk about them more than I see them, but it's like, you know, we, when we hear the word starving, we think of something very acute, like, you know, you're, you're wasting weight and you have like seven days, you know? Um, and I'm trying to like re kind of calibrate and refocus, like telling people it's not that they're like starving right this second. It's that, they have, it's they're chronically malnourished. Like they just 
their food stress. They don't have enough food to thrive. Like they're sure they can find enough to, you know, get by maybe and hopefully, you know, successful pregnancy here and there, but um, they're not, they don't have enough food to thrive. That's, and I talk about this a, a bit on the boat and I, I don't have science on this or, or data um, other than anecdotal of what, what I know from other, other science and, and, and seeing what we're seeing with what is happening to salmon, especially their, their preferred uh, Chinook salmon. It really comes down to math and it's not so much that there aren't enough salmon in numbers. Of course, you know, it'd be great to have a lot more because we are down way down in, in terms of numbers of salmon. It's the size of what's, what's there. They, they have to spend so much more energy because the salmon are so much smaller. They have to spend so much more energy getting this, the, their calorie needs that they used to be able to fulfill with far fewer calories out in hunting. And the, the size of the salmon mm-hmm. is, is really, I think, almost more important than the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I think you can hit the nail on the head there. It takes that much more effort when an average salmon now is what 15, 20 pounds compared to 30 to 50 pounds or whatever it is. More, but, yeah. And I, and I don't even know if it's 15 yeah. to 20 now. I mean, I, I, I yeah. I'm wondering if it's like, you know, eight to 12, which is, yeah. And when, yeah. when it's like, yeah, you catch a salmon that's eight to 12 pounds, or even if it's 15 to 20, but it used to be 30 or 40. It's you're, you're spending yeah. two to three times the calories out that you're burning to get the same in. It's, it's, it's not going to work. You're out, you're going to be nutritionally stressed all the time and it's going to amplify everything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Especially when they rely on those spring to fall runs so heavily too. And those keep de- depleting. You know, you can see that that's part of the, the photogrammetry work that um, everyone's done is you can see that, when they come back after the winter, they're, they're typically in their worst condition and, and typically their best condition is sort of in the fall. Right. So obviously, you know, that, that summer, spring, summer, fall is so important to their survival through the winter. It's going to be fascinating to see how they continue to, to change things up and, and adapt. And, you know, the other thing I tell people is adaptation doesn't happen in a generation. Uh, it, it takes many generations. It will span beyond our lifetime sure. for, for, for them adapting. And I also, it's important to note that you know, we're, we're looking at this from the outside. We know exactly what's going on with them. They have no idea what has happened to salmon. Um, and I'm sure that in their culture, there have been over the last thousands of years, there have been times of reduced salmon numbers. Uh, but they've always come back. They are not aware that it's probably not coming back. They don't know what's happened. They just know that it's depleted, but they don't know why. They don't have the information we have to work with. Yeah, and isn't that one of the most heartbreaking things? You know, I I, I think about that, especially the year Tassel and I always talk about this, my partner and I, about the year of you know J fifty and J fifty two and yeah and that whole stretch of time, which was sort of the biggest sort of eclipse of my career working in whale watching where it was just, you know, you have these little, these little whales that are two or three years old and they're, they're getting sick and, and, you know, no, they don't know why and they can't find enough food and they don't know why. And that just that thought of that just Mm -hmm. made me so sad. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking for them and, and hopefully, you know, they still, they still have a chance here. Well, and, and that was, during a time where they were still following the the old book of of how, where they went and when, I mean, they were still pretty ingrained in in their patterns of spending a lot of the summer in the inland waters, going up to the Fraser River quite a bit, and then back down to the San Juan yeah. Islands. I mean, they were here. You know, it it definitely was was in the process of changing, but during those years of of 2015, 2016. They were here quite a bit during the summer, way more than they they've been in the last few years. Ever since JT yeah. passed away, they've they've really. I was just gonna say, yeah. it, it seems like after 
you know, after the old the old senile lady passed away, <laughs> they were like, "We're not we're not going back to the river again." Right. Um, Changing of the guard. You know. You know. Now you see Brian Gisborne did this uh, talk at we were at this uh, workshop in the spring uh, about it. It was about entanglements and, and whale responses. But Brian Gisborne did an interesting talk about these southern residents out there and, and northern residents who are feeding on black cod. And like I said, I, I don't know if that's fairly fairly new or just paying attention but it's interesting because he said they, they feed at depth but what they'll do the reason that he was able to figure out what they were eating is um the adults will go down there they'll grab these fish they rip the heads off and they take certain parts out and then they just they just eat what the, their preferred part is which is of course not com- not uncommon for killer whales to be picky eaters um but uh the, the juveniles and the youngsters will go and grab the fish heads and eat them and then when they come to the surface, they'll puke them up, oh. <laughs> and then and then and then and then Brian's able to collect the heads and, and figure out what they're eating. Um, but it's it's kind of a, a wild story going on out there. You know, he talked a little bit about the northern residents, uh, particularly G Clan, that's that's learned how to depredate. And um, for those that don't know, depredation is sort of just whales stealing food from fishermen, essentially, and. Um, the Southerns haven't started doing it, but the, the G clan have been following these black cod fishermen from the States um, because the, on the Canadian side, we fish black cod with pot. And on the U S side, it's with long lines, I believe. And these whales have just gotten so good at figuring out how to steal fish that they're not, they're now taking like 80 to a hundred percent of the catch. Wow. Oh my gosh. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. Which right. is obviously be- becoming an issue. Right, right. I'm yeah. It doesn't endear them to the mm-hmm. fishermen. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. No. That, yeah. that can be a little scary. Well, um, I mean, there's so many awesome things we could talk about for hours. But um, how about a, a couple yeah. of, of before we we leave a couple of listener emails? Oh, okay. Yeah, Jeff um, has some funny or not funny ones. Well, well I've got one funny, I, I, one funny one, but I, I do have one one funny comment that that I definitely want to get your take on, Gary. <laughs> um, but before okay. before that, um, and and Gary, you'll you'll dig this because this uh, we've talked about this on the on several episodes about uh, humpbacks intervening uh, when big killer whales are hunting a marine mammal, um, and that's been documented in several places around the world, including here. And we've talked about several times about not really being aware of other species that, that do something like that, that will go and intervene when there's really no interest on their own part of stopping the hunt. We got an, uh, an email from Carolyn uh, from Oregon. Uh, she lives near Depot Bay. And uh, she's been out with us five times before. Just wanted to note that. And so I'm going to read you her email. Because um, she said that it was in regards to other species interrupting hunt, hunts like humpbacks do on orca hunts. And Carolyn mm-hmm. said, hippos do big time. They're well documented in photos and videos from many sources going back decades, aggressively interfering with and interrupting several species of carnivores predating on various species of ungulates. Being herbivores, it's definitely not kleptoparasitism. I don't know if I'm saying that right. However, yeah, I'll continue. Yeah. Uh, the dominant theory in, in their case is that it's purely territorial, but anecdotally, it sometimes appears to be altruistic. Sometimes after successfully botching a predator's hunt, they've appeared to watch over the prey animal for some time. I tend towards the territorial, but the altruism theory is intriguing, just like in whales, isn't it? It's pretty cool. It is cool. And, you know, like, I don't know that it would, the territorialness would really come into play with whales, but I mean, I'm not a whale, so I don't know, but um, very, very interesting. I think it's just yeah. interesting yeah. that there's another species out there that can be quickly identified as, yeah, they, they go in and break right. up predations too on, on, you know, on other species. Yeah. So my, my take on and it's funny you mentioned this because my take on it has always been that it's territorial behavior rather than altruistic. Um, and it's funny because I didn't know about the hippos, but that totally kind of makes sense because they're notoriously territorial. And when you look at where a lot of these interactions happen, they're in sort of these 
good aggregations of feeding humpbacks. You know, in good spots like off in, in the western Juan de Fuca Strait, um, there's there's a number of them off Parksville this year where there's a big concentration of humpbacks feeding in a small area. Blackfish Sound, I've seen it there before. Um, so I don't, I mean, not to take anything away from humpbacks, but I don't think this is them trying to save seals or sea lions. I think it's them being sick of killer whales and get out of our hood. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. No, well, I that's, that. that's just as cool. Yeah. I mean, it's just as yeah. interesting and just as cool that you, you know, that they would actually be territorial. Yeah. Yeah. We had this um, encounter with in the winter when we were uh, with Jared doing a, a base ecology survey. And we got up to Stubbs Island and T4062. Um, I think I told you guys this story before, but she popped up and she out of nowhere and she had a seal in her mouth and she came straight over to our boat and just dropped the seal like right beside us and swam away. Huh. And, uh, so now we, we have this dead seal floating beside us <laughs> and she's off, off doing her thing. And we're like, Oh, that was nice of her. I'm not going to eat it, but that was nice of her. <laughs> and, um, and then of course, you know, we didn't do anything with it. So eventually she circled in, came back and, um, picked it up and started feeding on it. And then, all these humpbacks started coming in one after the other and just kind of charging at her. And it was so interesting to see it from the boat, but from the drone, because Jared launched the drone, it was so amazing to watch, to see obviously a humpback and a killer whale on the same frame, but to watch the sort of like the nonchalantness, if that's even a word, um, of T46 C2, like, you know, this, this giant 40 ton humpback twister comes barreling in and she just like drops the seal it swims right at the seal. She just kind of circles around it. And then as soon as the humpback's gone, she grabs it again, like a dog with a chew toy and keeps going at it. And, um, it was, it was really interesting to see this little confident little killer whale. That's awesome. That is great. That is really cool. Uh, I definitely want to get your take on this comment, Gary. This is a comment that was left on our, um, my legacy whale watching YouTube channel. Uh, in response yeah. to the, and you can, you can get the video and the link on our last episode, episode eight. This was the video of the, uh, the T-99s and, um, uh, 65As hunting the minke whale. And so oh boy. this person watched the video and the comment is, I don't understand why whales exist. Like you're going to breathe air, <laughs> but can't live on land. And if they did live on land, they wouldn't last long. <laughs> oh, that that gets a like. That gets a thumbs yeah, up. It does. Multiple <laughs> thumbs up. We're gonna yeah. upvote that one. Oh, yeah. that's so good. That that definitely was that made my 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 day reading reading that comment. Um, <laughs> we also got a really nice email from um, Casson in Austin, Texas, uh, with a great idea for a future episode. Um, suggesting a, a Q&A. Um, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Love that idea. So if people are interested in having us do a, a Q&A, uh, let us know. Send send some questions so we can start collecting those questions. You can email us at afterthebreachpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also get contact info and view our past episodes. View. Listen to our past <laughs> episodes no viewing. Uh, from our website, uh, afterthebreachpodcast.com. Yeah, maybe we can get uh, Gary back on for a Q&A and Tasley. And Tasley. And yeah, if you listen Monica to, I think it was someone. episode two might have been. Um, episode two or three, the Humpback Comeback. Uh, that was Tasley, uh, Gary's partner. And uh, yeah, get you guys bo- both back on and Monica. and Yeah, it'd be fun. Have a big, uh, a big yeah, Q&A a session. Idea. Yeah, so everyone should send in questions for those of you that are listening, and we'll start collecting those. Um, you know, on on whatever topic you're you're interested, any questions, everything's fair game. Yeah, we could do even do a live thing. You know, or you know, go live on Instagram. That would be fun on the gram. Um, speaking of Instagram, Gary, where can people find you on social media so they can appreciate all of your amazing photography as well? Yeah, um, my Instagram, which is pretty much the only thing I use these days, is at Gary underscore J27. And, and then a lot of the work we do uh, through OceanWise is going to be on um, at OceanWise Research. So those are the two pages where you can see some of our photos that were taken. And I highly recommend checking both accounts out. Definitely. Um, just some of the amazing things that they, well, Gary posts and then OceanWise Research uh, 
yeah, just amazing, amazing content. So and we'll put links to those in the show notes. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Gary, for joining us tonight. Thanks, everybody, for joining in and listening. Um, it's been an awesome episode. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Gary, thank you. Always, always fun hanging out. And uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, definitely, if you can, give us uh, a review or rating and send in your questions to after the breach podcast at gmail.com. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. And let's uh, do an in person meeting soon. Yeah, with, for with, sure. With beer. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. All right, guys. Have a good night. <laughs> <laughs>